Good morning. I add my welcome to that of uh, Peter's and pastors. It's lovely to have you here and to... Oops, sorry mate, it fell off. There you go. You've got a bit of a spiky thing happening there. So. Yes, we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I haven't spoken for a while, so uh, I hope you've been able to uh, keep in tune with where we're up to. We're up to chapter 5. I'm going to be starting at verse 8. What is this picture up here? Well, this picture, or this painting, is the moneylender and his wife. It's a famous painting by the Renaissance artist Quentin Metzis. I wonder why you think I've got it there. The moneylender. He's sitting at home, counting his money. He's got a set of scales there, a bit hard to see from the distance that you are, but he's measuring a pile of money in front of him and he's carefully assessing the value of a single coin that you can see there. Yet in the picture, in the painting, your eye is also drawn to the woman sitting next to him, the moneylender's wife. She's leafing through the Bible. If you were able to come up here, you would see that it's either a Bible or a certainly spiritual writings because there's, uh, there's pictures there. And I'm, I know Matisse wanted to get across the idea that this is uh, his wife thumbing through the Bible. Except that she is distracted by all the money being counted. See, she's turning the page to go to the next section, but her gaze is, gaze is captivated by that coin that the, the money lender has in her husband's hand. And Matisse, he painted this with a, a serious point of view. His adopted city in Antwerp had become the world centre for business and trade. But Matisse, or Metzis, knew how easily money could pull us away from the worship of God. And that's what he was trying to portray there. The idea of the moneylender with his money and his wife engrossed in the Bible but being glancing over to look at the money. And hence he painted that painting. But Metzis is not alone. Solomon understood this problem as well. In fact, I'm pretty sure all of us here this morning can feel the tension between our devotion to God and money. We know that God demands our highest allegiance. We know that. We know that in our heart. We believe that nothing is more precious than the message of the gospel. We believe nothing is more precious than the forgiveness of our sins and the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, whom we've been singing about a lot this morning. Yet at times, we're easily distracted by money and more importantly, the abundance of things that money can buy. And so sometimes I'm sure we find ourselves giving our allegiance where it shouldn't be. Rather than listening to the word of God like in that picture, we're distracted by the finances that we have or try to have. And this is what Solomon is about to share with us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You might like to turn there with me. We're going to be start looking at verse 8. And following on from that. And I believe Solomon wants to help us win this spiritual struggle we have. And he's going to show us by uh, allowing us to see that there is vanity, there is emptiness, there is uselessness in loving money 
and all it can buy. Look at verse 10. We're going to start at verse 8, but verse 10 is the big idea of this passage. Uh, If you want to know what the big idea is, here it is. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income, this too is vanity. Verse 10 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes. Solomon reaches down from the 9th century BC into the 21st century, into 2015, to tell us this. And it could be written today. God's word is as true today, or yesterday, as it is today. And so Solomon is going to give us, I call it a warning passage, about loving money and loving the abundance that money can, can buy. But before Solomon gets into the vanity or dissatisfaction with wealth or that wealth can cause, particularly individually, he first mentions what happens to the masses in his day and I believe happens in our day and that is the oppression of the poor. In a moment, he's, uh, Solomon's going to make this personal to us but he starts in verse 8 by talking about the system that we live under that he lived under then and that we'll see that we lived under now. The system of the 9th century BC he's writing about or it could even be the system of 2015. Look at verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. You see, Solomon sees something that we all see, the oppression of the poor. And he sees the denial of justice and righteousness at every level of society. And you don't have to have the wisdom of Solomon to understand the control that government officials have over the poor. The rich, simply because they have money, tend to take charge in societies. They control the money, they control the land, they, the gross national product is controlled by them, the political arena is controlled by them. The rich usually become lawmakers, they become the officials who run the government, both state and federal. They even become those who establish the red tape. Don't we love red tape? And here we have it there. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. Talk about red tape in the 9th century, we have it here in the 20th century, 21st century. Solomon puts it that way. I wonder if you found, if you had to deal with our officials that red tape gets so thick and so complex in what you're doing and it gets so thick and complex that the poor can no longer gain entrance to be heard by the rich. Those with wealth tend to take charge and the poor become intimidated. And whether you like it or not, there is no justice or righteousness in this country. But what is Solomon's main point here in verse 8? What is his main point? His main point is don't be shocked that this is happening. Don't be shocked about this. That's his point. 
There are so many kinds of injustice in society that don't be surprised by them. It's going to happen. At least verse 9 seems to offer a partial solution to this problem where it says, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. The best defence against government corruption is a godly king. Now that's not the greatest of consolations for us to to hear when we don't have a king. But the fact is, Solomon is saying, as long as we live on this earth, we will see people buying their way into power. We will see people using public positions for personal gain. We'll see manipulation of the system for their own advantage. And he says, don't be shocked at that sight. So rather than looking for the government to solve our problems, we need to acknowledge that even the best rulers fall short of perfection. Therefore, we live in a hope of a better administration. We live in the hope of a better king, a king that we're not going to find in Ecclesiastes, but we do find in the Gospel. I'll read Isaiah 9 to you, verses 6 and onwards. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, and listen to this, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. See, Solomon didn't see justice and righteousness. We don't see true justice and true righteousness, but we've got a king coming who will uphold justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. No wonder we sang that last song. We're waiting for that to happen. The zeal of the Lord will do this, is the end of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. And so until that happens, don't be shocked at the sight of officials over officials who are our other officials and the oppressed or the poor being oppressed. Don't be shocked at it. Now Solomon is not using this as an excuse for unrighteousness. He's simply saying and, and giving us the realistic life in a fallen world under the sun. Remember that, that one passage that we've discussed for four chapters? Living life under the sun, without God, without even referring to God. And so Solomon is being realistic. Life under the sun, don't be shocked at what you see. Solomon is talking about on a national scale. But beginning in verse 10, he now brings things down to us, to a personal level. Public officials are not the only people who want to get more money. This temptation falls upon all of us. So Solomon warns us in verse 10 about the vanity of loving money and the abundance that it all brings. I class this as a warning passage to us and I'm going to give you what he has listed as four warnings against it. But he starts off with his premise. 
He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Now I want you to notice Solomon's words very carefully. He uses in verse 10 the word love and not possess. He who loves money. He who loves abundance. See, Solomon's words here are not an attack on finances or having money. There is never any attack in Scripture against those who possess riches. The Bible never says that the root of all evil is money, does it? How many times have you heard that being quoted? It's the love of money is the root of all evil. And Solomon picks it up here, the love of money, the love of the abundance that money can buy. And so this is not an attack on those who might find themselves in a position that we would call being rich. However, this is a very full frontal attack on loving money and loving the things or the abundance that money can bring. I'll read it again. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This is vanity. It is useless. It is emptiness. So Solomon, in all his wealth, in all the money he had, in all that we've gone before us in living under the sun, and him, him warning us, he is now the richest man, and he's giving us the idea that greed is wrong. He is giving us an open assault on a materialist who has to have more and more and more and wants more. When Rockefeller was asked how much money would be enough, he seriously said, just a little bit more. In all the wealth that he had, just a little bit more is what I need. Satisfaction, contentment, happiness often seems to be just beyond the reach of those who try to purchase it. But I want to state here that it's not just rich people who love money and wealth. There are many people with little money, no money, who love it. As Augustine, Augustine said, he said, the love of money is not a matter of income, but of desire. So there are people who have a lot of money, who have learned the hard way that there's much more to life than money. There are others, however, who don't have a lot of wealth, but they love and hold on to and grasp the little that they do have. And they love it. Then you've got others who don't have money at all, and they love money too. They spend hours dreaming about what it would be like to be rich. I wonder what I can buy when I win lotto. They dream about the money that they could have. And you know those people because they go around singing, if I were a rich man. And, and so you don't have to have money to have the love for money. You don't have to be rich to have that. I wonder if you're able to smile contentedly this morning and say, I have plenty. I have enough. If not, then maybe it's something to look at in your life because according to Solomon, no, much, no matter how much money you do have, 
If you're in love with money, and if you're in love with the abundance that it brings, it will never be enough. You can never have enough money if you love it. You will never be satisfied with no matter how much money you have if you love that money. That money will never buy you happiness. It is vanity, according to Solomon. It is empty. Now, it's amazing that money can buy tons of comfort, money can buy tons of toys, but money cannot buy one ounce of contentment. And Solomon is warning us. He's giving us a warning in his, in his journal. He who loves money will not be satisfied with it. It's vanity. And so to help us to avoid this, to help us to, to avoid the love of money, he gives us four warnings about what it is to have money and the vanity of having money. As I said, this is a warning passage for those of us who think it would be great to be rich, who just needs that little bit more to be, think that they will be satisfied. Four warnings. And the first one is a warning about having money that other people will try to take it from you. That's the first warning. Look at verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The phrase, those who consume them increase, is referring to people who consume the wealth that we have. If you have wealth, then you're probably finding that it's the oppressive government is taking it through taxes. Or it might be people who are coming to you begging to get something from you, the sponges, the freeloaders, the hangers-on, long-lost relatives that come around that want that money. But no matter who they are, the more we have, the more other people try to get it, according to Solomon, the wisest man ever lived. So we may see it, but it'll be gone before we ever get a chance to use it, according to Solomon. I think the prodigal son found that out the hard way. He had plenty of money. As soon as it was all gone, everyone was gone. All the freeloaders left. And he was poor. So he saw it, never got a chance to use it. The New Living Translation of verse 11 says, The more you have, the more people come to you to help you to spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? I like that version. This is vanity. And Solomon gives us a second warning about loving money and its abundance. And that is, it will keep you up at night. Look at verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Now remember, this is without God in the picture. As a general rule, people who work hard all day are ready for a night's sleep. Some of you are ready for a night's sleep right now. Darn those late nights. There's a good cause, but I can see people really struggling. I'm going to have to do some pulpit bashing. Oh, sorry. oh, you can add a note in there. Sorry. 
But it is. But just going back to the passage, the sleep of the working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of a rich man does not allow him to sleep. Whether, whether that working man or woman has had a decent meal or whether they're so poor they had to go to bed hungry, the sleep is pleasant. But not the lover of money, not the lover of abundance because being wealthy and staying wealthy is a 24-hour job. Peace of mind and ability to relax, a good night's sleep eludes those who are greedy for more and we need more. Why? Because they're forever preoccupied with pursuits that have financial entanglements. Problems that don't go away when they leave the office. When they finally drop into bed by two in the morning after looking at their investments over the other side of the world, they toss and they turn and they wonder, I wonder if that deal is going to pay off. I wonder if it's too big a risk. And around and around they turn over and over, they twist and their sleep is, uh, is not there. Here's a person with increased money, increased possessions, who has more anxieties than they've ever had. They can't even enjoy a restful sleep at night. Again, the New Living Translation, verse 12 says, People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or eat much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. I wonder how your sleep is. I wonder if you get a good night's sleep. This leads us to Solomon's third warning. Why having a love for money and having a love for the abundance fails to bring satisfaction and that is money cannot buy security. Look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. Gee, that sounds like 2015, doesn't it? Losing investments, losing money. Solomon calls this a grievous evil. He literally is saying it makes him sick to think that this has happened. You can work hard all your life, you can make a ton of money, you can hoard it all away, but there's no guarantee that that money is going to be there tomorrow. A stock market crash, a bad investment, can deplete your savings in the wink of an eye. And there's a lot of hard-working people who have found out this during the, the stock market crash several years ago. Is Solomon saying it's wrong to save? No, he's not saying it's wrong to save. He's saying it's wrong to hoard. Swindoll puts this verse in a kind of um, parable or, or a, a saying. He says... Those who have clutched can quickly crash. Solomon says, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. The New King James says, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. Reminds me of Scrooge McDuck. Might be going back a long way in my old uh, reading of comics, but he used to get a, have this big vault and he used to get dressed in, a, in his swim suit and go diving in his money and swimming, and he just used to hoard it. Never spent it, just hoarded it. 
But even if you're not hoarding, even if you don't consider that you're not a hoarder of money, the reality of verse 14 is still the same. Riches are transitory. You can strive to accumulate them, but it can only sometimes bring misery. At times, even money that's saved for the right motives can evaporate more quickly than it can be earned. But Solomon is, is making the point, if you're hoarding your riches for a selfish purpose, that's the point that he's saying here. There is a grievous evil. He says again in the New Living Translation, there is a serious problem I have seen under the sun. A serious problem I have seen without God being in the picture. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. The third warning, money will not and cannot give you security. Then there's a fourth warning, the last warning that he gives us. And that is, you can't take it with you. That's a good warning, isn't it? You can't take it with you. Look at verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labour that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage of him who toils for the wind? Remember, this is all under the sun. This is warning passages. We'll get to the good stuff a bit later on. There is good stuff, I'll tell you. There's a story about an inscription left by a prospector. He says, I lost my gun, I lost my horse, I'm out of food, the Indians are after me, but I've still got all the gold I can carry. Friends, that gold was useless in preventing his death and it's worthless once we have died. See, in these two verses, Solomon is forcing us to face a moment that we tend to ignore. And that is the moment of death. This verse is like a person who's in a maddening pursuit for, for a financial goal, working 20 hours a day, who drops dead of a heart attack without any ability to prepare. It happens every day. In Solomon's words, so what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? What's the advantage of taking nothing with you? Why do it? We only depart exactly as we entered life, naked, without a cent to our name. I can only assume that Solomon's words here were the inspiration of our Lord's in Luke chapter 12. You might like to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. It's a very poignant passage that fits in marvellously with what Solomon is teaching. Luke chapter 12, verses 16, or starting at 16. So the Lord spoke a parable to them. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those will then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So there we have Solomon's message in our Lord's message. Whose will it be when you die? All those things that you have accumulated in those barns, God says, you're a fool. I want your soul tonight. Whose are all those things going to be now? So he who lays up treasure for himself, and otherwise those who hoard, are in that position. Whether or not we make a lot of money, like it or not, the day will come when we have to leave it all behind. And Martin Luther wrote this, he said, As I shall forsake my riches when I die, so I forsake them while I'm living. It's a good thing for all of us to say about our money and possessions, look, we're headed for eternity, therefore let's travel light. Let's not hoard or clutch those things that, and they'll be no use to us when we get to glory. Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be which you have provided? Don't lay up treasure for yourself. Be rich towards God. We all come to the end of our lives, verse 15 in the New Living Translation says, we all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us and this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All their hard work is for nothing, like working for the wind. Four warnings that the love of money and the abundance it can buy is vanity. Four warnings that says other people are going to take it from you anyway. You'll just watch it go. It'll keep you up at night. The warning that money will not be your security. And the warning that you can't take it with you anyway. And then Solomon summarises those four warnings in verse 17. He says, throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness and anger. What a conclusion. Throughout his life, this person, this hoarder, also eats in darkness. A pathetic picture of where greed will lead you. The greedy eat in darkness, they eat by themselves, their marriages fall apart, their children rebel, there's no friends that can be trusted and they hoard themselves away. If you've ever seen the movie Aviator, talking about the billionaire Al Howard Hughes, you would understand he was one of the richest men in the world. He held the destiny of thousands of people in his hands, perhaps even governments at his disposal, yet he lived a sinless, joyless a sunless, sinless, uh, sorry, sunless, joyless, and he ended up being a half lunatic, if not all lunatic. He became a recluse for 15 years to the point where they didn't even know if he was alive. 
His former employees felt nothing but disgust for him. His first wife lived in a separate house and then left him. Money cannot buy love. Verse 17, throughout their lives they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged and angry. And if we left that at this point, we'd go away pretty sombre. We'd have the warnings, we'd have the knowledge that this is not a good thing, but Solomon doesn't leave us there. There must be a better way to live, and there is. Look at verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. So he's told us what's not good, what's not fitting, and now he says, here's here's what I've seen in all my experience. He says, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labour in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as, far, as, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labour. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. What a wonderful conclusion. In three verses, something was mentioned that was never mentioned in the first ten. Do you know what it was? God. God is mentioned four times. In fact, what Solomon is saying is that enjoying life is a gift from God. You can't buy it with money. You can't buy it with the love of money. You can't buy it with the love of the abundance of money. The Lord offers it to us by his grace. And in these three verses, Solomon notes three ways that God grants us joy. And the first is in verse 18. He grants us joy through the fulfilment of our work. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy yourself in your labour, in which you toil for the few years that God has given us. So for the few years that God has given us, enjoy yourself, enjoy your labour, eat, drink, this is your reward. The end of verse 18 says, what Solomon's point here is, which I believe is echoed throughout all of Scripture, is that our work becomes significant and becomes fulfilling when we understand that our work is a calling that God has given us. Our opportunity to earn money brings satisfaction when we realise that the money can be used in the right way to meet the needs of our family, not to hoard it, but to be rich towards God. As, Luke, as the Lord said in Luke chapter 12. That's where our enjoyment comes from. When we're doing the work which God has called us to do, then there's joy to be found in it. How do you view your jobs that you're doing? Sometimes we separate our jobs into secular and, and our church or spiritual life separate from it. Wherever you're working, wherever you are, whether it's in the home or or some workplace, we have to come to the point to understand that this is what God has for us. 
And if we get to that point, we'll be able to enjoy ourselves in our labour for the few years of our lives which God has given us. God has given us a few years and now he's telling us, go and enjoy it. Eat and drink and enjoy yourself in your labour. It's our reward to do that. And so Solomon tells us in verse 18 that God grants us joy through fulfilment in our work. Then verse 19, God grants us enjoyment through what we do possess. Verse 19, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, and I want you to focus in on that, to every man whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labour. This is the gift of God. It's like writing the first, verse 18 in another way in verse 19 except he's added to the point that God is the one who gives riches and wealth. Now earlier Solomon said and listed many of the reasons why accumulating money is vanity. Yet here he tells us explicitly that if we are wealthy, if we are rich, then enjoy it. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? But notice where the power for the enjoyment comes from this time. It comes from God. These are God-given riches, God-given wealth. Both having things and enjoying things are gifts from God. The world that God created is full of many rich gifts, but the power to enjoy enjoy them does not lie in those gifts. The ability to enjoy wealth The ability to enjoy family or friendship or food or work or any other good gift, that ability only comes from God. It doesn't come from anywhere else. So the God-centred verses of the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 call us back to a joy that we can only find in God. The person who finds the greatest enjoyment in life is the one who knows God who has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. They are the ones who are to enjoy, will enjoy life. See, in this passage, I think Solomon has been teaching us to depend on God for our enjoyment. Don't depend on your money. Don't depend on the possessions that money can buy. And for that matter, don't depend on any of the many gifts that God has given to us. As a result of doing that, we will miss the point that we can only do it under the power of God. And as a result, verse 20 says, For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. There's nothing more noticeable than the lack of joy in a Christian. And we need to, be, to learn to be grateful for what we have rather than longing for what we don't have. And that is indeed the key to joy. For he will not often consider the years in his life. Why? Because God keeps us occupied with the gladness of our heart.
God keeps us so busy enjoying life that we should take no time to brood over the past. So whether we're talking about our income, our job, our geographical location, our physical condition, we all need to learn to be content. We need to look for ways to discover the contentment. God is there in the content. God gives contentment to you as a gift. He has ways for you to discover contentment, even in your present situation. Don't rely on those physical things. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't seek to improve our situation. It simply means we should be grateful and rejoice in what God has given us already. Whatever you have now, be thankful for it. In closing this morning, I think our attitude towards money as Christians needs to be based on what the Bible teaches, not on what other people think. One chap wrote, The chief value of money lies in the fact that we live in a world where worth is overestimated. And he's right. Most of the people in our society place too great a value on money. And though we may deny it at times, many of us have fallen into the trap of thinking that money will buy happiness. I just need that little bit more. I just need that win in lotto and I'm going to be happy. I just need that and I will be happy. Many have fallen in love with the idea of money. And that's what that painting we put up earlier portrays in the money lender and his wife. It portrays the idea of of money and the distraction that it is for his wife as she reads the scriptures but as she turns the page is distracted by the wealth of that money. And we Christians also need to be very careful. Our friends at work or at school, our friends at church may have a very wrong and distorted attitude about money but we're not to follow those. Search the scriptures and read passages like Luke chapter 12 that tells us that it doesn't matter how hard you work and you tell your soul, well, soul, I've hoarded enough, now I'm going to rest and the Lord takes your life from you. Read those scriptures, be encouraged, be rebuked. Search the scriptures, ask God to help you to develop an attitude for money that is godly, that is pleasing to him. And I've discovered one of the most important things in life is to learn the true value of money and the true value of possessions. And then being able to distinguish what money can buy from what it can't buy. And we each need to ask God to help us to understand the difference in that. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for the writings of Solomon from the 9th century BC, thousands of years ago, and yet, Lord, it could have been written just the other day. Father, things haven't changed where money is concerned, where the love of money is concerned. I thank you, Father, for these warnings from Solomon the warnings that the love of money and the love of abundance that money brings is vanity. The fact that it just slipped through your hands, the fact that it's not secure, the fact that we can't take it with us, the fact that we won't sleep at night, we'll eat alone 
be angry. And yet, Father, we are confronted with the knowledge that where you are in the picture, it's our reward to be able to enjoy what you have given us, to take what you have given us and enjoy it because this is our reward. But Lord, help us to see the difference. Help us to see the difference between the love of money and the money that you have given us to live and to eat and to enjoy. And in the the end, Lord, we'll know the difference and that in the end we will not hoard but as Luke, or as the Lord told us in Luke, that we will use it to God's glory. So Father, take these words of money through your scripture and use them according to, you, to your Holy Spirit in each of our lives, according to where we're at, each one. And I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.